0: The very real possibility that, you know, there was at least an opportunity for other people to have planted that evidence in, a, in an attempt to frame Ivan. There was just a lot that the jury didn't hear.
1: When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's reality of it. We have busted alibis, we
2: have caught people in lies. This is just insane, because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else.
0: You just don't hear every day, walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody.
2: So he could get the execution date pretty much any day?
0: Yeah. There's no impediment.
1: This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 10. What happened to the ring? This episode, will be covering Ivan's trial. It took place over 10 days in October of 2001. And I didn't even think about the date until Ivan wrote me this in a letter.
3: On September 11th, 2001, day of the World Trade Center attack... We were going through the dire process picking a jury. At 9.30 a.m., when the courtroom became aware of the terror attack, everyone in the gallery, including the judge, prosecution, defense team, and potential jury members, became immediately concerned and couldn't wait for the next break. At this point, we weren't sure how bad our nation was being attacked, but everyone in the courtroom that morning was eagerly wanting to contact their family especially family members that lived in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania areas. When I noticed that no one cared to be in the courtroom, especially to pick a jury during the panic and fear of our nation being attacked, I asked Matt Geller to request that we break for the day so that everyone could compose themselves and catch their bearings. However, according to Matt Geller, the judge said in no way would we be stopping for the day, and we continued picking a jury. Based on the looks of people's faces, you could see that no one wanted to be there. But yeah, I picked a jury during one of America's worst days in history. Think about it. How could any potential future jury member remain objective and truly give my life and case against me a fair chance? The answer is there's just no way.
1: As if the days leading up to the capital murder trial couldn't get any more dramatic for Ivan. The backdrop would be 9-11. And while it's impossible to say how that would have affected the jury's mindset during trial, you can certainly see what he's saying. The trial started on October 3rd, and this was the prosecution's opening statement, given by Gail Falco in 2001, now being read by an actress.
4: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Amy Kitchen and James Mosqueda spent every night and every day side by side. But it's not how they planned it. They were engaged to be married, planning to live their life together. Not as they are six feet under the ground. They didn't die by accident. They didn't die of natural causes. But they died because of a man who had absolutely no regard for human life. A man who had a gun. This man, Ivan Cantu, who callously shot and killed his own cousin James Mosqueda and James' fiance Amy Kitchen. The evidence will show that on Friday, November third, two thousand, Amy Kitchen and James Mosqueda went to dinner with Amy's dad, Jerry Kitchen. They met him down in Dallas for dinner. It was approximately 10.30 at night when they were headed home. They were in James Mosqueda's Corvette. That was the last time Jerry Kitchen saw his daughter alive. The evidence will show that Amy's mom, Bernadine Kitchen, talked to Amy on the phone at approximately 11.20 that Friday night to make plans for the next day because she and her daughter, Amy, and her granddaughter were going to go shopping together. And the plan was for Mrs. Kitchen to call Amy at nine in the morning to make sure she was awake and they begin their day together. And Mrs. Kitchen did that. She called at 9 o'clock. She called at 9.30. And she continued to call all morning and all afternoon with no response. Finally, at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon that Saturday, November 4th, she went over to the house to see what was going on. She knocked on the door. She tried opening the doors. All the doors were locked. The shades were drawn. She got no answer. She went to the fire department. When the fire department went to the house, they tried the doors and tried the windows. And they were able to look in the master bedroom window just a crack and in that master bedroom window, they saw a pair of feet on the bed. So they broke into the house, broke a window, and made entry into the house where they found the dead bodies of Amy Kitchen and James Mosqueda. The evidence will show that the defendant lived less than a mile away from them right across the tollway. He lived in a one-bedroom apartment with his girlfriend, Amy Betcher. The evidence will show that at approximately 11.15 that Friday night, November 3rd, he called the victims and told them he needed to come over there and talk to them, and he left. About an hour later, he came home, blood in his hair, blood on his jeans, blood on his socks, driving Amy Kitchen's Mercedes and wearing James Mosqueda's shirt and James shoes. He came in, he was ready to go out. He wanted to go to clubs. He wanted to go to a party. He took a shower, told his girlfriend to go straighten the Mercedes because he parked it crooked. He took a shower, and they were headed out. But before they went to the club, he wanted to take her by the victim's house. He wanted to show her those dead bodies to show her what happens when somebody messes with him. He had the gun, and he took Amy Betcher inside the house, showed her those bodies— he also picked up his shirt and his shoes that he had left over there and a cell phone and put them in a trash bag. When they left, he put the Mercedes in the garage and the police eventually fingerprinted that Mercedes and his fingerprints in the Mercedes. He had Amy Becher, his girlfriend, drive his Honda and he took James' Corvette. They went back to their apartment and when they got to the apartment, The defendant put on James' bracelet, his necklace, his watch, and then he proposed to his own girlfriend, Amy Betcher, by giving her the engagement ring that had been on Amy Kitchen's finger. And then they went out. They went to clubs, they went to parties... People saw them out that night, saw them in the Corvette. They stayed out all night. The next day, about noon that Saturday, they left for Arkansas. This is a trip that had already been arranged because Amy Betcher's parents lived in Arkansas, and they had been talking about getting married, and this trip was arranged so that Amy Betcher's parents could meet the defendant. They got to Arkansas Saturday night and stayed there until approximately Tuesday. While they were in Arkansas, the police located the Corvette, which was still parked outside the defendant's apartment. They executed a search warrant on his apartment and they found the bloody jeans and the bloody socks in the trash can in the kitchen. They sent those bloody jeans and those bloody socks to a forensics lab to perform DNA analysis. The DNA analysis will show that the blood on the jeans is James Mosqueda's. The blood on the socks are James' and Amy Kitchen's blood. They also found Amy Kitchen's car keys, found a key to the Mercedes, found a box of bullets, and another set of keys that contained the victim's house key. The defendant came back into town approximately Tuesday night. This is November 7th, and they spent the night at an old girlfriend of the defendant's named Tawny Savoic. The next day, the defendant was arrested. When Amy Betcher, his girlfriend, found out he had been arrested, she wanted to go back to her parents. Tawny took her to the airport. When they were at the airport, Amy said you might want to check your apartment and see if the defendant left anything there. Amy got on the plane and she went to her parents and called Dallas Police Department to let them know where she was. Tawny went home. She looked under the couch cushion where the defendant had been and she found the gun. She called the police. The police came and seized the gun. The gun was loaded, fully loaded. When they printed the gun, the defendant's fingerprint was on the magazine, in that gun. They also sent that gun to have the forensics lab to have DNA analysis performed on it. James Mosqueda's blood in the barrel of that gun. Autopsy report. Dr. Rohr, the medical examiner, will testify James Mosqueda was shot twice. Once in the left neck, once in the right temple. Both shots were at close range. Amy Kitchen was shot four times. One time it went into her arm, exited her arm, and lodged in her breast. One time she was shot in her shoulder. One time she was shot in her back. The final shot was to the top of the head. The evidence will show beyond a reasonable doubt on November, sometime between November 3rd and November 4th of 2000. This defendant, Ivan Cantu, shot and killed his cousin, James Mosqueda, and James' fiancé, Amy Kitchen.
1: That was the state's opening statement. And as we already know now, there's a lot more to the story. But the really telling part about how this trial was going to go happened at the very beginning. The defense reserved rights to an opening statement. What exactly did that mean, and why would they <laughs> have done that?
0: Sometimes it's um, they will reserve their right for opening statement before they start their own case-in-chief. The defense starts its own case-in-chief.
1: That was Ivan's current lawyer, Gina Bunn.
0: Now, the issue with Ivan's case, of course, was that there was no defense case-in-chief. So there was never an opening statement.
1: And the defense's silence must have been deafening
0: and talk about, you know, what, what was in counsel's mind, and I don't know what was in counsel's mind when they decided to, you know, reserve opening statement. The problem that I see is that um, <laughs> defense counsel, in this case, didn't really have a theory. And, and you know, to, to be able to make an effective opening statement, you need to have a theory of the case you need to have something to tell the jury something to you know for the jury to hang its hat on um and they didn't they didn't and of course i think that's because of you know the, the lack of, of independent investigation and the the failure to put the state's case to the test but you know if you don't have anything to say say an opening statement Obviously, when they get to closing argument, they concede Ivan's guilt, so if that's that's why they were gonna say an opening statement, obviously, it's probably better they didn't.
1: (laughs) That's correct, the defense had no opening statement, and in their closing statement, they conceded Ivan's guilt, but we'll get there. Before representing criminal defendants, Gina worked for the state, so she's seen capital murder cases from both sides.
0: Well, I worked for the attorney general's office in Austin. Really, the first 14 years of my practice, I did nothing but federal habeas corpus in, in Texas death penalty cases. So, you know, obviously, I saw a lot of, of these kind of cases and represented the state in those federal court appeals. From the you know, state's attorney's perspective, you get a case and at least one person's dead. And if you win, somebody else is going to die.
1: Gina was appointed this case in 2008, so she's been Ivan's lawyer for 12 years. And here, she recaps the state's case.
0: Amy Becher, his girlfriend, uh, who testified about, um, you know, she was she was the state's star witness to testify that he admitted to murdering James and Amy Kitchen, and that he actually took Amy Becher back. To the scene, and she saw she saw the scene. Her testimony obviously was critical to the state's case, corroborating Amy Betcher's testimony. Was the DNA evidence that uh, evidence that um, was found in Ivan's apartment, uh, linking him to the murders. The uh, victim's car keys, what purported to be Ivan's jeans with uh, the victim's blood on them. Uh, socks with the blood on them, some ammunition that appeared to be consistent with the ammunition used in the murders. That was really the, the crux of the state's case.
1: So like I said in episode one, this certainly sounds like an open and shut case, but here's how quickly it can unravel.
0: When you look at the state's case, basically, you know, you're looking at Amy Betcher's testimony, and you're looking at the the, the physical evidence which the state argued, linked him to the murder, and corroborated Amy's testimony. If you are willing to acknowledge, first, the probability that Amy lied, for whatever reason, and second, the the possibility that the evidence might have been planted, then there's nothing else. You're not left with anything.
1: However, there are two pieces of evidence that seem to be more problematic for Ivan's innocence claim one would be the smudged thumbprint on the magazine of the gun it is a smeared partial print but a fingerprint expert testified at trial that there was still enough of the print available to match it to ivan however fingerprint analysis is not as ironclad as you might think and because the defense never hired an independent fingerprint expert we'll be re-examining this with our own expert in an upcoming episode but This second piece of evidence is especially compelling as well. A ballistics expert took the stand during trial and testified that the bullet taken out of Ivan and Amy's apartment wall matched the weapon used in the murders, the 380 caliber pistol found under Tawny's couch cushion. You'll remember that bullet was fired into the wall on November 2nd, two days before the bodies were found. Amy Betcher said Ivan fired at her while Ivan said the pizza man fired the shot into the wall. So, if we look at Ivan's story, that would seem to be another issue with the already hard-to-believe pizza man story. If that ballistics finding is correct, then that would mean the pizza man killed James and Amy Kitchen, or at least passed off his gun to the murderer, which would be possible. But because no one seemed to believe the pizza man story in the first place, it was much easier for the jurors to believe that Ivan fired that gun into the wall and then committed the murders with the same weapon. So this case is far from cut and dry, one way or another. However, there are some curious details within these ballistics reports, and they too will be looked into in an upcoming episode. As the defense did not challenge these findings,
0: when you look more closely and, and you see the the problems with Amy Betcher's testimony that weren't vetted at trial at all. Um, you see the the evidence that supports an argument that a lot of this evidence found uh, in supposedly purportedly linking Ivan to, to the offense, the very real possibility that you know there was at least an opportunity for other people to have planted that evidence uh, in an attempt to frame Ivan. It just there was just a lot that the jury didn't hear. First off, I think the the fact that trial counsel didn't seek the appointment of a defense investigator, um, didn't seek uh, the appointment or the assistance of a DNA expert, a ballistics expert, blood spatter expert, or a medical examiner, and these are all experts who were utilized by the state during its case-in-chief. And yet, the defense failed to even seek assistance in any of these disciplines on the the defense's behalf. So really, there was no independent investigation of this case.
1: And that's why this podcast and investigation is so important.
0: It, It appeared that trial counsel just took the state's case at face value. A couple of the things that were actually in the trial record were these telephone records. Records from the landline at Ivan's apartment, uh, which were admitted into evidence at trial. And and they actually showed an outgoing call from Ivan's apartment on the evening of November 4th, which indicated that someone else had access to that apartment long after he and Amy Betcher had left for Arkansas.
1: We haven't even had time to get to this. On November 4th, the day the bodies were found. And you'll remember that evening, there was a wellness check at Ivan's apartment with the two officers. Well, that wellness check was cleared at 8.37 p.m., meaning Sylvia and the cops were out and the apartment would have been locked back up. And this is where it gets really interesting. There was an outgoing call from Ivan and Amy's apartment at 8.53 p.m. So that certainly seems to indicate that someone else entered the apartment and made the phone call 17 minutes after Sylvia and the cops would have left. Now, on the stand, Officer Younger testified Sylvia made that call, but Sylvia says she never made a call from the apartment. She had a cell phone on her, and regardless, that call was made 17 minutes after they left. But the defense never picked up on that or called Sylvia to the stand to testify. And the next piece of evidence we have been over, the tool tag hit
0: showing that James's Corvette was driven at eleven fifteen in the morning on November fourth, which was completely inconsistent with Amy Betcher's testimony.
1: You'll remember that Amy Betcher said they got home at ten A.M. that morning and yet the Corvette hit a toll tag at eleven fifteen AM. Ivan says they were already on the road to Arkansas before eleven fifteen AM in the Honda. So again, neither Amy or Ivan's timeline accounts for this movement in the Corvette, which certainly seems to indicate that someone else was driving the Corvette. But this was never heard at trial because...
0: Trial counsel failed to cross-examine the state's witnesses regarding either of these issues. And, and, and these were both, I mean, to me, very critical issues, um, discrepancies in the state's evidence That were just they were right there. I mean, the evidence was in I mean, these these items were in evidence, but they were never effectively presented to the jury to to impeach the state's case, to impeach Amy Betcher's testimony um, or to show that um, someone else had access to that apartment and obviously, you know, could have um, planted evidence
1: as well. Defense counsel did not call witnesses to the stand. that could have helped Ivan's case. They didn't call Tawny. They didn't call Penny. They didn't call Sylvia. They didn't call the female officer from the wellness check, Susan Eisenberg, to the stand. All of these people, at the very least, could have started raising some reasonable doubt. It's really shocking the discrepancy of witnesses for the state versus witnesses for the defense. So I counted, and it might be a little more, or a little less, but I counted 34 witnesses for the prosecution and zero witnesses for the defense. Is that normal?
0: Uh, well, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's normal. Um, hopefully not. You know, obviously, you know, you have the state's case, you have the state's witnesses, you have the state's experts, you have the medical examiner's report, you have the state's DNA report, you have the state's ballistics evidence report, you have the state's fingerprint report. And if you don't test that case adversarially, then that's what the jury's going to have. They're going to have state's witnesses. And yes, you know, the, many of these witnesses were cross examined Some of them weren't. Some of these state's experts weren't really cross-examined at all.
1: And even aside from the forensic experts that were not challenged by the defense... Here's a few names you might recognize who also took the stand and were not challenged. Frank Perez, James and Amy Kitchen's mysterious roommate of three weeks. And Carlos Gonzalez, who Ivan, Sylvia, and Tawny were very suspicious of. During cross-examination, Frank Perez was never asked about the witness statement to police, where the witness saw Frank using his sweater to open doors and turn on lights as if he didn't want to leave fingerprints. And Frank was never asked about the statement he made. Quote, they were killed last night, they weren't killed today, unquote. And Frank was never asked how he knew that, and how that lines up with Amy Kitchen's rigidity, indicating he was correct, she was killed on November 4th. And when Carlos was on the stand, he was never asked if he knew Amy Betcher prior to her meeting Ivan. And he was never asked about telling Sylvia about James safe in the house. None of that line of questioning ever took place. And the and the state continued to make its case. It got really interesting when they called the lead detective. Apparently, Detective Wynn didn't bring his notes to the stand. So therefore, he was uh, having trouble kind of remembering the case. And then at a certain point, I guess they took a break. And then he brought what seemed to be a big stack, a big file of papers in.
0: Binders. Binders the- full of papers.
1: Yeah. No now explain that.
0: Well, you know that in what court, happened I wasn't there? the trial. Right. <laughs> you know that that's a good question. I mean just reading the record is difficult to even to, to determine because but at one point, yes, you're exactly right, when Detective Wynn was on the stand and he, he wanted to be able to review his notes. And he comes up with these, you know, spiral binders full of, you know, apparently witness statements and offense reports. And of course, when, when that, when that happens, defense counsel is like, okay, well, um, he's using this to refresh his memory. We're entitled to that. So there's huge hearing about whether defen- the defense is, is entitled to this information. Uh, you have the state not only, you know, not turning it over at trial while the witness is on the stand. But even then, I mean, the defense, they didn't get them even at trial. Um, The state, you know, went through these binders and, and turned over what it deemed to be, quote, unquote, exculpatory. But the bulk of these binders, the defense didn't even get them. They didn't get it. You know, they never did get it witness statements, uh, statements that, you know, offense report that the state argued on the record, well, you know, we don't think they should have them.
1: Well, the prosecutor, uh, Bill Schultz, he says during the Sub-Rosa hearing, uh, it appears to be covered by Brady. The Brady material law comes from the Supreme Court case, Brady versus Maryland. The Supreme Court ruled that any evidence favorable to the defendant must be turned over to the defense. Now, are they saying that this information it was covered by Brady, so the defense should have had it?
0: Yes, that's correct. And what they what he's talking about specifically is that um, anonymous tip that they received regarding Mario Rojas.
1: Mario Rojas another name to add to the top of the list of persons of interest. On November 5th, the day after James and Amy's bodies were found, an anonymous tip was made to police. The police record stated, quote, The caller was a Hispanic male, possibly in his 20s to 30s, with a good command of the English language. The caller stated that he wanted to remain anonymous, but that he wanted to pass on some information regarding this case. He stated that he was at a pool hall in Oak Cliff and that people in the pool hall were talking about the complainant's death. He stated that the people were saying that they believed an individual named Mario Rojas, Latino, male, in his 40s, killed the complainant and his girlfriend because James owed a lot of money for drugs. The caller stated that he was never told how much the complainant owed Mr. Rojas only that it was for, quote, the white stuff, which he knew to mean cocaine. The caller stated that Mario Rojas is a major drug dealer. He stated that he usually drives in limos and is in the Oak Cliff area of Dallas. He stated that Mario Rojas was tied in with a guy named Johnny Mojica and that Johnny Mojica is currently on the run and is wanted by the Dallas Police Department. He stated that since Johnny Mojica started running, Mario Rojas moved up in power within the organization. Unquote. That was the entirety of the police report. So that is extremely interesting. And the defense only found out about this major piece of exculpatory evidence mid-trial. During the sub-ROSA hearing, they also go through it with Detective Wynn as to was this Investigated
0: it, from, from Detective Wynn's testimony, it appeared that, you know, he had talked to the narcotics division and um, they had said, yes, you know, Mario, we know Mario Rojas and and we don't know anything specific that would tie him to James Mosqueda. And that was it. That was the end of the inquiry. But, you know, defense counsel apparently never had the opportunity um, to, to look into it at all.
1: Without getting too far into the pizza man story, I mean, if you start Mm -hmm. lining things up, Ivan said this guy dressed like a Domino's pizza man came over saying that James owed them a lot of money for drugs. And now you have this Mm -hmm. anonymous tip that says James owed this Mario Rojas a lot of money for drugs. So Mm -hmm. things do seem to line up that were never investigated with Ivan's story. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. And it may just be a coincidence, but the caller in this anonymous tip said that Mario Rojas rode in limos, kind of a weird part of the tip. But this is how Ivan described the pizza man's vehicle.
3: I looked through the living room window, but I couldn't tell whether or not Matt had entered the driver or passenger side of the car. The car was an older box style black Lincoln with tinted windows. It was the tinted windows that kept me from seeing the side of the car that he entered." An old box-style Lincoln with tinted windows
1: isn't exactly a limo, but could that have been what the anonymous caller was talking about? Was the guy dressed like the Domino's pizza man connected to Mario Rojas or Johnny Mojica? Something we'll be looking into in an upcoming episode. But instead of taking this tip seriously, Geller is recorded in the trial transcripts as saying, quote, Your Honor, I think the state has brought up a conspiracy theory judge. I'm going to need to take a very lengthy continuance to investigate this. Judge, you know I'm teasing, right? Unquote. So Geller made a joke about actually investigating the tip. Pretty incredible.
0: To be entitled to a mid-trial continuance um, is it's a it's a very difficult burden to satisfy. So it would have been it would have been an uphill battle to get a continuance on this basis. I'm not going to say it, it wouldn't have been, um, but at the same at the same time you have newly uh, discovered evidence coming in the middle of trial while the state's witnesses is literally on the stand uh, the first you're, you're hearing about this tip received by the police that, a, that someone else was the, the perpetrator. So obviously this is a big deal. And you know to, to, to shirk it off you, you know judge we're no, we don't really mean we needed a continuance. I mean that's, that's pretty flippant really all the same thing. It's all just accepting the state's case for guilt at face value without subjecting it to an adversarial challenge. I mean, to not seek the assistance of a defense investigator in a case like this. It just it boggles my mind.
1: It must have boggled Ivan's mind too.
0: And there's no question that Ivan was dissatisfied with his representation throughout, you know, pre-trial and and trial proceedings. He was, you know, insisting that he was innocent. I think he was extremely frustrated with what he perceived to be trial counsel's failure to investigate things that he was asking them to do. And I think it just came to a head there at the end of um, the guilt-innocence phase. This was at the end of the state's case in chief. They had indicated that they were were resting. And I think it, it, actually the defense had as well, and that's where the controversy started. Ivan's trial attorneys were, were ready to rest without presenting additional evidence, and Ivan was none too happy about that.
1: So to be clear, at the end of the guilt-innocence phase, after the prosecution called their 34 witnesses and made their case for guilt, the prosecution rests. And then, without making a case for innocence or calling any witnesses, the defense rests. So what kind of defense is that? The Sixth Amendment guarantees a criminal defendant the right to a lawyer. Technically, Ivan did have a lawyer, he actually had two, but if those lawyers don't present any evidence of innocence or call any witnesses, how can that be considered a defense? As presented during this podcast, there was exculpatory evidence and there were witnesses. So how can this be considered a fair trial? This would have been the point that Ivan was understandably flipping out and wanted to fire his lawyers.
0: There's a lot of back and forth. At that point, uh, counsel questioned Ivan's competency to stand trial.
1: So when Ivan wanted to fire his lawyers and contemplated representing himself, Ivan's lawyer, Matt Geller, questioned his mental state for trial.
0: And what a competency inquiry would do at that point was, you know, would be to require the judge to question Ivan's competency. And I think uh, the simple fact that he was dissatisfied with his trial lawyers and, and to the extent that he even um, you know, entertained the, the possibility of, of representing himself um certainly doesn't make him incompetent to stand trial.
1: If anything, Ivan was well aware exactly what was going on. He was about to be found guilty of capital murder and his lawyers were doing very little to stop it.
0: And then, you know, it, you know, you have the, the defense going back and forth with the state and with the judge and, you know, Ivan obviously wanting to get in front of the judge and, and talk about his case and His counsel saying, no, don't do that. No, don't do that. And it it was just, it was very, you know, convoluted procedurally. Um, A lot of, you know, potential issues there.
1: Towards the end of the trial, there was a hearing where Ivan expresses that the defense closing the evidence was against his wishes. Ivan wants to talk directly to the judge, but his lawyer objects to the right for Ivan to speak. And then they take a break, and Matt Geller makes this statement, On Ivan's behalf, it's being read by an actor.
2: Yes, Your Honor, i prefer to do it this way than have my client either testifying or being subjected to cross. It's been, well, since we took the break until just now, five or ten minutes speaking with my client, and I've written down the major themes that Mr. Cantu would like to discuss with the court. Mr. Cantu would like the court to know that he is not a marshmallow, that he is in chains, that he has pieces of a puzzle that we need to put together, That his attorneys have not done their homework. That his attorneys have told the jury that he's a piece of shit. His words. I'm sorry for the profanity on the record. Jury only thinks what they hear from bad people. His attorneys have not shot everybody in the ground. The more truth he tells his lawyers, the more they won't fight. The more honest he is, the less his attorneys work. We need his attorneys or his attorneys have not presented evidence that he is not guilty if everybody wants to talk about complete honesty, then he does not need any lawyers. His lawyers are possibly throwing in this case, quote unquote, because we work with Collin County. He would like to explore the possibility with the court of new counsel. We have not, his attorneys, have not done enough research. He does not know what all of his legal options are at this point. He would like to explore with the court the possibility of proceeding pro se and that, finally, Mr. High and I do not want to win.
0: You know, Ivan was, was very frustrated with counsel. Um, and I think, I mean, it even appears that if he had had access to resources, he might have told the court, yes, I want to represent myself.
1: But the judge and Ivan's lawyers essentially talked Ivan out of representing himself. The judge advised, quote, well, that's probably why you don't see too many intelligent defendants representing themselves in criminal cases. Perhaps you've heard, you know, you don't give yourself an appendectomy, right? You go to a doctor to get that done, unquote. It's clear in these transcripts Ivan was pushed and pulled through this entire process. Did Ivan have the right to fire his state-appointed attorneys and request new ones? <laughs>
0: I mean, he he could have typically the only thing that he's going to be able to do, because, you know, basically you're you're entitled to, you know, court appointed counsel, but you are not entitled to you know counsel of your choosing unless you can, of course, hire counsel. So, you know, you can't say, well, I don't like these. I want some more. Um, Certainly not in the middle of trial. There's no trial judge in Texas. That's going to, you know, give you a continuance because you decide in the middle of your trial that you don't like your lawyers. Now, sometimes, you know, if if it comes to the point that, you know, there's a breakdown in communication, which I would say might have happened in this case, it was difficult in this case because, you know, you've got it, you're in the middle of a capital murder case, you've already got a jury in the box, you've got a very um, tough road to hoe, so to speak, to get a judge to, to listen to you when you say, you know, I don't want this lawyer, I want a new lawyer. That's a very difficult burden to satisfy at that point procedurally. He he would have had the right to, you know, fire his lawyer and represent himself. Um, and, of course, that was kind of discussed a little bit on the record here. Um, you know, it's it's just, it's it's very... Dicey, and I think that's kind of what you know. With the Supreme Court's opinion in McCoy versus Louisiana, uh, you you start seeing the the realities of these cases and how they can come to a head on issues like this.
1: What do you mean by come to a head?
0: Well, you got um, you know, like in McCoy.
1: Here, Gina explains the McCoy ruling.
0: The Supreme Court said that the Sixth Amendment. Uh, requires that a criminal defendant um, has the right to insist that their attorney uh, not admit their guilt. Even if counsel's experience would um, tell them or, or advise them that confessing guilt might give their clients the best chance of avoiding the death penalty. Like in, you know, Ivan's case, you've got. Uh, a criminal defendant who consistently maintains his innocence uh, is dissatisfied with his court appointed counsel um and their you know apparent unwillingness to investigate any further to you know to question the state's witnesses to um question the state's expert um testimony where you know criminal defendants kind of kind of stuck with an attorney who you know looks at the state's case and says, okay, my client's guilty, what do they do?
1: And this is why the McCoy ruling is important when it comes to Ivan's case. The defense's closing arguments. So I counted five times that Geller said, I did not say that Ivan was innocent. I said he was not guilty of capital murder. Is yeah. that, is it an issue that he said, I'm not saying Ivan is innocent?
0: Yes, yeah, he conceded that Ivan was guilty of murder. He only appeared to challenge the technical element that would uh, elevate it from murder to capital murder.
1: Does this fall under the McCoy ruling? How would you explain that?
0: I think that it does. Obviously, this concession was in direct opposition to Ivan's uh, decision on how to proceed with his trial. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, raising that issue in, in appeals in, in Ivan's case now, I mean, there are other procedural obstacles <laughs> to raising it.
1: The Supreme Court has yet to determine whether the McCoy ruling is retroactive, meaning it's currently unknown if the 2018 ruling will affect Ivan's 2001 trial. So that's to be determined but it may be a major factor in Ivan winning a new trial and finally being able to present all of this additional information. But next, Gina and I discussed the very intriguing topic of Ivan's supposed confession and the fact that Matt Geller never told his partner on the case that their client confessed. Wouldn't it be typical that a lawyer would share with his co-counsel if their client confessed?
0: I would think so, um, because, you know, the thing is, I mean, attorney-client privilege is, is going to extend the co-counsel, obviously. In that manner, there's no reason based on privilege not to share with co-counsel, obviously. And I would think there would be a a reason definitely to share with co-counsel to develop trial strategy. I mean, it just it seems to me that's such a critical piece of um, information from defense counsel perspective, that it would need to be, you know, common knowledge on the defense team.
1: So did Ivan really tell his lawyer or did his lawyer really make that up? Well, does the the confession seem out of character with your experiences with Ivan?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it is so out of character with everything else I have ever heard from Ivan. You know, when I, when I listened to the podcast and heard his, you know, early, those early jail phone calls with his mom, I mean, you know, it sounds like just exactly like the same Ivan I've been dealing with for the, you know, for the past 12 years. I mean, intent on um, proving his innocence. In that context, this, you know, confession to mister Geller just it just doesn't make any sense.
1: And once Matt Geller wrote up the confession in an affidavit, that became part of the case record, which comes up at Ivan's every appeal. So each court reads that Ivan confessed to his lawyer, and they would naturally assert that Ivan is indeed guilty. Without knowing the fact that Ivan vehemently denies this confession. Without knowing Ivan has never confessed to anyone else. Without knowing the fact that his lawyer never told his co-counsel, which seems very suspicious. And without considering the possibility that his lawyer lied so that the courts would condone the inadequate performance by the defense. At this point, Ivan has appealed in nine different courts. Six federal courts and three state courts.
0: It's difficult It's one thing to say that nine courts have, have reviewed his case, but you know, it, but that's misleading in the sense that, you know, no court really has ever reviewed the merits of his claim that his trial attorneys rendered ineffective assistance at the guilt innocence phase.
1: Those courts have only reviewed his case for the punishment phase, whether his lawyers were effective after he was found guilty. And arguing for life in prison versus the death penalty. A court never reviewed his case for ineffective counsel during the guilt and innocence phase. And this is the real travesty of the post trial proceedings. So where does Ovin's case stand now?
0: Well, at this point there's you know, there's nothing pending. I don't know what Collin County's plans are as far as scheduling an execution. I mean, that's been at least a legal possibility for, you know, some time now. I don't know when, you know, when that might happen.
1: Like I said in the first episode, Ivan literally could get his execution date any day. And then there's typically a 90 day countdown to execution or clemency. That's why we need as many people to listen to this podcast as possible. People need to hear that there's just way too much reasonable doubt and problems with this case for a person to be executed. So, if it's not that, what else could it be?
0: Well, it could be, you know, filing a successive application for habeas corpus in state court.
1: And that just depends on.
0: Our ability to, I mean, I mean, this is still in the investigative phase, and, and you know, I y- y'all have you know uncovered quite a bit of information, and I'm, you know, of course, and I'm, I'm still trying to get information from the DA's office, the so, some information that we you know are still holding out for, so that's I mean we're, we're really I mean we're, we're still in the investigative process. I mean I, I want to know that we have all the potential arguments that that we can before I file that successive application. And also, I mean, you know, we've made some, some, you know, discovery requests to the state. Uh, You know, we're still waiting for crime scene photos and fingerprint cards and this supposed original evidence log. Looking at it from the outside in, it's like they don't know what they have. I mean, they, they know that, you know, the evidence that was presented at trial, they have that. But as far as, you know, the evidence, the whole thing, the whole, you know, the entire product of the state's investigation of the case, I don't know what's there. And I don't know if they did. To me, one of the very most, the most frustrating parts of this case is dealing with the Dallas PD Collin County thing.
1: You'll remember from the jail tapes, Ivan was arrested by Dallas PD and then transferred to Collin County when they figured out it fell under their jurisdiction.
0: Obviously, this is not the first and near the first nor near the last case um, where, you know, Dallas Police Department investigates the case that, you know, Collin County rather than Dallas County prosecutes. Just seems like there's a there's a disconnect. Holland County says, well, you know, the police department, you know, would have that. Dallas, you know, police department says, well, we don't have, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the runaround.
1: Well, and I think that, you know, that, that is maybe hard for people to understand, too, but we're, we're literally still waiting after 20 years for all the evidence. Is that correct?
0: Mm, yep.
1: How can the state execute a man? without giving him all the evidence. Well, it seems like it's heading down that road, and that's why we're starting a petition for Ivan. People have been reaching out and asking how they can help. Well, here's how. This petition will be for Dallas PD and Collin County to release all the evidence in the case to Ivan's lawyer. That's all we're asking for. It doesn't seem like too much to ask in a capital murder case. And maybe if we get enough people to sign the petition, we can get Dallas BD and Collin County to listen. You'll be able to find the petition on our Facebook page. I next asked Gina about the element that first got me intrigued by this case, the ring, Amy Kitchen's engagement ring. Do you think that Ivan would have really, at least the way the state presented it, would have killed them? And taken the ring off Amy Kitchen's finger, and then gave it to Amy Becker.
0: You know, it it seems pretty outrageous. It it just seems pretty out there. You know, of course, you know the stage theory that he, you know, they were high and partying, and you know, getting caught up in it or whatever. I mean, that was kind of their theory of the case, I guess. And and I I guess to that extent, it sort of fit, but. You know, it, it, it kind of, to me, it, it really does kind of fall apart. I don't know. I mean, it never has. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I mean, what happened to the ring? That's, you know, one of those weird...
1: Yeah, what happened to the ring? Amy Betcher said that the ring that she was wearing that night and showed her parents in Arkansas that weekend, she said that on the way back from Arkansas, Ivan took it back. He told her he was gonna have it sized for her. If that was Amy Kitchen's ring, Ivan was arrested less than 24 hours after supposedly taking it back from Amy Betcher. It wasn't on him when he was arrested, and it wasn't found under the couch cushion with the gun and the drugs. So did this $10,000 engagement ring just vanish into thin air? Ivan said neither he or Amy Betcher ever had Amy Kitchen's ring. He said the ring that Amy Betcher was wearing was a fake CZ ring that she got from her friend Raina. So was there one ring or two rings? Regardless, Amy Kitchen's diamond platinum engagement ring is missing, and whoever has that holds the key to this entire case. I then asked Gina what it was going to take for Ivan to get a new trial. And what about all the ways we can prove that Amy lied in her statements to police and committed perjury?
0: You know, it's not enough to, based on new evidence, you know, impeach her testimony. That's you know, that's it's not enough. I mean, if you can, you know, and it, it is. I mean, it's difficult because you can say, what is enough? I mean, obviously, it's an issue of degree. You know, you don't know if you've got enough until a court tells you you've got enough. That's that's the difficult thing.
1: In the context of proving ineffective counsel. It is measured by the Strickland standard in which the defendant must show that counsel's performance fell below an objective standard of reasonableness and that absent counsel's errors, there's a reasonable likelihood of a different outcome. So let's say, had Ivan's lawyers investigated the case, investigated things like the anonymous tip that Mario Rojas killed James and Amy Kitchen, Let's say, had Ivan's lawyers actually called witnesses and presented evidence of the possibility that Ivan was framed, evidence like the outgoing phone call from the apartment when Ivan and Amy were out of town, the Corvette toll tag hit, and the bloody jeans and evidence that were two sizes too big for Ivan. Had Ivan's lawyers actually had a theory of the case that Ivan was framed and presented that in an opening statement, and instead of conceding Ivan's guilt in the closing statement, had his lawyers put all of these pieces of the puzzle on the table to show that there's a lot of problems with the state's narrative and there's actually quite a bit of reasonable doubt in this case if Ivan's lawyers had done all of these things is there a reasonable likelihood of a different outcome would Ivan still have been found guilty of capital murder that will be up for a court to decide one day hopefully but I also wondered what new evidence would we need to uncover. If the ring were to turn up, would that be enough?
0: Enough what?
1: <laughs> en- enough to, <laughs> See, enough, to get him, enough to get them enough to get neutral, or there's there's really no, there's no magic bar. There,
0: there is no bright line. This is what it takes. Like I said, you know when the court tells you it's enough. You get as much as you can.
1: That's basically what we're waiting on, or you're waiting on, is what is the greatest amount of stuff that we can all put together and then present that, because literally Ivan has one more shot. Yep.
0: Yes, that is correct.
1: So this first season of the podcast was merely an introduction to the case. Season two will be the investigation that was never performed by Ivan's defense attorneys and an examination of the state's case. We're going to have our own experts look at the forensics, from the blood splatter to the ballistics and that smeared thumbprint that the state said matched Ivan. And there's a lot of people to talk to. Carlos Gonzalez, Anthony Fonseca, Frank Perez, Mario Rojas, and of course, Amy Betcher. And we're going to be looking back into that robbery. You'll remember that Ivan was convicted of stealing the three things. James' Corvette, Amy Kitchen's engagement ring, and the family heirloom, the Rolex. I've said before, this supposed robbery doesn't make any sense.
0: Yes, there there are a lot of problems with the state's case. Uh, And of course, you know, some of the new evidence that's been developed, the fact that, you know, this, this Rolex... has has been located,
1: now. That's right. The Rolex has been located. The Rolex that Amy said this about in one of her police statements.
4: We left in the Corvette, and after we went through the tollway, Ivan threw a watch out the window. Ivan said, I don't want this shitty Rolex.
1: And in another statement, she said,
4: We left our apartment and drove to Club Seven. On the way to Seven, Ivan threw out a Rolex that belonged to James.
1: Well, now that the Rolex has been located, we know for a fact Ivan never stole that Rolex. And Ivan never threw it out the window of the Corvette. So how and why did Amy make that up? Next season on Cousins by Blood. Thank you all for listening to Season 1, and thank you for all your support. Season 2 will be coming out as soon as possible, as time is of the essence on this case. However, in the meantime, if you want to dig in more on the case, we'll be releasing the trial transcripts on our Facebook page. And these trial transcripts are a fascinating read. The petition for Dallas PD in Collin County to release all the evidence will also be up on our Facebook page. At Cousins by Blood podcast, Thank you all for your tips on the case so far, and please keep them coming. Ivan has one more shot for us to gather as much evidence as possible for his final appeal. If you have any information about the case, please email us at cousinsbybloodpodcast at gmail.com or call and leave a message at 469-382-2004. Ivan Cantu's letter, read by Ryan Freed. The opening statement, read by Catherine Ganaimi Leach. Matt Geller's statement, read by Theodore Perez Jr. Amy Betcher's statement, read by Sarah Ganong. Mixing and mastering, by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for Season 2. What would be the first thing that, that comes to your mind, though? Why should people hear this? Well, they need to hear this because they need to know that I, that I never harmed, I never killed, I did not do anything to James or Amy. I'm an, I'm an innocent person, I do not belong in jail, and if people would just take the time to look at my situation, hear the information that you're going to share, and remain open-minded, and look at the evidence that we present and lay out, they'll clearly say that, that I'm an innocent person, that I do not belong in jail, that I do not belong here, and that I never harmed or hurt James or Amy, and I, cert- I certainly did not kill anybody.